Um, you got an extra hour of rest, so I know you're feeling very fresh this morning, having that. Of course, we had a couple of people come a little early, but that's all right. It's better to be early than late on the other side when we go the other way. But uh, we're two days from um, our country going to the polls, those who haven't voted early. Um, and so I'm, I'm preaching part two of a message I, I did last Sunday, Jesus, the Church, and Politics. I mentioned two authors there. I uh, don't know if you uh, pulled up their respective articles. John Piper, which I have a great love for. I have some of his books, Desiring God and uh, A Hunger for God. Just a great pastor. Um, love to hear him preach. And he wrote an article about uh, this election. And then Dr. Michael Brown, who I also have great respect for, um, he wrote a response to that. And so they come to different conclusions about this upcoming election on Tuesday. And uh, it's really not about who we vote for, it's what we vote for that really is very imposing upon us. Um, I guess I don't have to tell you, we have a real divisive time right now politically. It's kind of toxic and um, you can get into a little bit of trouble real quick by people reacting to something you post or say or you tweet. Um, when, the, when the dust settles after all the, the heated debates and the Facebook wars and the Twitter uh, tweets and feeds, the division about personalities, it's not about that at all. It's about policy and future and our, our nation's future. And uh, numbers don't lie. I uh, voted for the first time in 1972. Um, just missed, uh, you know, 68, but they didn't change the voting age from 21 to 18 until 71, so it wouldn't have mattered anyway. But uh, I got a chance to vote for the first time in 72. And uh, in about four months, I'll turn 70. So I've lived the vast majority of my life. In 2016, about this time, I made a statement in uh, the pulpit and this is about as political as you're going to ever see me. And uh, I, I'm, I've done a lot more last Sunday and today than I, I'm comfortable doing this. But I feel compelled to share what I'm going to share with you this morning as well as last Sunday. But I made a statement simply saying I'm voting in 2016 for my grandchildren who are school age. And... Um, I'm concerned. I'm concerned about public education. I'm concerned about what's coming into public education. And so uh, I got an email from um, someone who visited the church that Sunday, and uh, it was not very flattering toward me. It's, uh, you know, she really went after me. It was a visitor. I, I don't even remember her name, but uh, I did respond. I thanked her for her response. Um, I said, you're really going to have to, like, talk bad about my wife before I really kind of get offended and, and I will get offended if you do that but um, it just weighs upon me I was you know four years younger at that time and here my children my grandchildren are much younger and especially when policies were in place in 2016 that allowed for boys who said they really were girls to go into the girls restrooms now I have a problem with that and I have a problem with uh, the locker rooms the, the, there's a reason why there's girls restroom and men's restrooms and and I got two granddaughters and I and I'm I thinking about all of the stuff that's that's kind of formulated 
And when they get 16, they're not anywhere near that right now, but it, it just weighs on me, and I pray for them. I pray that God would have their heart, their mind, and that they would have wisdom of the Lord, and that they would be protected. Listen, we live in such a dangerous time today. And uh, there, there's a lot of evil out there that's not always so clear. It's underneath the surface, and I think we have to discern things. So my message today is not so much about, I don't think it's my responsibility to tell you what to do and how to vote. But I really feel compelled to draw our attention to our influence in culture. How we are to affect the culture around us. And I'm going to take you to, to uh, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. And um, <clears throat> this is the Sermon on the Mount. This is the longest continuation of Jesus in one location ca uh, covering a variety of subjects. And you know it begins with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's how it starts. And he, and he goes through that, and then he tackles a variety of issues. Many of them is connected to the law of God. And he will say something like this. He did this with adultery. It is written that you shall not commit adultery. But he says, I say to you. Do you remember what he said? I say to you that it's not just the action, it's the thought. And he said, I say to you, if a man looks upon a woman with lust in his heart, he has committed adultery already in his heart. And what Jesus did, he took law, but he elevated that it's not just actions, it's the sentiments and the, it's the ideas and that sin takes up residence in our mind before it ever takes residence in our body. And so before he gets to those subjects and after the Beatitudes, he says something that's so remarkable, I think we just kind of go through it, but it has everything to say about who we are and how we're to affect culture around us. These words are not unfamiliar to you, but here we go. This is Matthew 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. And this is the action point. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may say, see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So here's the question. Are we going to be God's salt on Tuesday? Are we going to be God's light on Tuesday? Well, let's just back up. Are we going to be God's salt today? Because I don't believe in coincidences. I've come to conclude when the Lord puts somebody in front of me, it is for a purpose, and I need to discern that purpose and be so in tune with him that he speaks to me and that I don't miss that opportunity. And that happened this week. God broke down, broke down in the parking lot. When I say broke down in the parking lot, he had a garage-level hydraulic lift with one side of the car jacked up and the other one on stands. I think he's having a mechanical problem. So I pulled around, and he begins to apologize for being in our parking lot. I said, no, no, no. 
I come over here to see what I can do to help you. Can I help you? Oh, no, no, I got it. And I asked him a, a couple of things. And I said, I said, listen, I don't believe in coincidence. I believe you're here in our parking lot for a reason. What can I pray for you about? The man walks over and tells me he just had an interview for a job, and it didn't seem like it went very well. And, and his first name was Corey. And uh, he says, I, I just need help with that. And so I was able to speak to him. That's when God really wants us to be salt and light is the current day that we live in. But if we get to see Tuesday, are we willing to be God's salt? Are we willing to be God's light? Our lives are to directly affect people and to show them by that last statement. He says, so let your light shine among people that they may see what God is doing in your life and turn to him. And give him glory because they've witnessed a true, authentic representation of the Lord. Now, that's affecting culture. Here's a question <clears throat> that I posed last Sunday that Andy Stanley, and it's going to be back up on the screen. <clears throat> Are you willing to follow Jesus when following Jesus creates space between you and your political party your party's platform, and your party's candidate. It seems to me that there's way too much emphasis on a party's candidate and not enough emphasis on a party's platform. And John Piper, in my estimation, as much as I respect and love him, in my estimation, he does that very thing. He puts way too much emphasis on the personality and not enough on the plan, the vision, the purpose. So here we are two days before we give our consent to a political party being in power to execute the plans that they have written out in their platform. And I said last, last Sunday, I don't know how many of you have even brought it up on your laptop or on your phone or whatever and have read just a little bit. Just read the headings. And I'll tell you, it's, it's a burdensome thing. I would rather do just about anything than read it. But when we're casting a vote, we're doing it to put someone in charge. And the plan that they've already said what they want to do. Now, it's a little, you know, it's a little bit of a, a burdensome to read the Democrat Party platform. It's 90 pages long. 42,861 words. I, had done, I have not read all of those words. <laughs> and the Republican platform is 56 pages consisting of 36,642 words. And allow me just for the moment to look for the effects of salt and light in these platforms. Where is salt? Where is light? What can be derived from what we read there that could we could embody salt and embody light as we attach ourselves to that party or to that party's candidate. Here's a footnote. The GOP really did not write a party platform for this year, 2020. Anybody know that? Don't raise your hands, and, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands if you have read it. But they didn't adopt one. And because of so much limitation at the convention, they just said, we're going to 
we're going to reinstate our commitment to the 2016. So they really posted 2016 with this resolution that whereas, you know how the resolution goes, whereas, 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 be it resolved. And they went through and said, we're just going to reinforce what we wrote in 2016. So those are your two platforms. When going through those platforms, we should be looking what Andy Stanley said in that question. We should be looking as Christ followers, does this create space between me and Jesus? When I attach myself to something, does it really create space between me and the Lord? As I said last Sunday, those two questions, I didn't read the first one to you, but that second one kind of just hit me that this is right. This is what we need to look at. This is what we need to consider. Abortion. We cannot ignore the tragedy of abortion. And we saw a little bit of the divide in the hearings res, uh, regarding Amy Coney Barrett in regard to Roe v. Wade, a horrific ruling that stunned all of us that heard the decision. Seven, seven to two Supreme Court vote, a, a large majority for Roe v. Wade. But let me just put that in the context of a decision in 1857 that was also decided by a seven to two majority. And it was a slave and his wife and his family that he would appeal that he had the right to be released because they transported him from a slave state to a free state. And it's kind of iconic or unusual that his owner was a lieutenant in the U.S. Army. I'm referring to Dred Scott, the Dred Scott decision. By a 7-2 vote, they declared that Dred Scott was a non-person, that he had no rights in the Constitution, and it would be like, okay, they, they protected slavery, but they went even further. They said that nobody of African descent had any rights under the Constitution as citizens. And they went beyond that. They struck down the Missouri Compromise as being legal. The very thing that tried to slow down the spread of slavery. We had a 7-2. to two. That lets you know that the Supreme Court can be wrong. And just because something is legal does not make it right or make it where God approves of it. And reproductive rights are all through the larger platform that I refer to. It's code for abortion. And in that platform, I'm just going to read one statement. Brenda says, you're not going to read from the platforms, are you? I said, no, just a little bit. She don't like me referring to her, so I'm already in trouble now. Look at me. But this is a statement. I don't know if this sends shockwaves to you, but it should. And probably a lot of you in this room has no idea what I'm about to share with you as to what are the repercussions. But I'm going to share that. I'm going to help you out. They said specifically in word writing, we will repeal the Hyde Amendment and protect and codify the right to reproductive freedom. 
Abortion on demand with no limitations. That's what it is. Raise your hand if you think what the high, you know what the Hyde Amendment is about. All right, $10 if you want to take a stab at what the Hyde Amendment is all about. I, I guess I, I really shouldn't have done that. Now I really feel bad. It was named after Henry Hyde. And when I read that, I, I just sent a shockwave through me. Let me tell you what the Hyde Amendment, it was, it was voted on in 1976. That's not long after Roe v. Wade. And it wasn't enacted until 1980. They gave it time to be put into place. But in 1976, they voted on it, and it, was pa it passed by 312 votes to 93 in the House. That shows you how strong a support it was for the Henry Hyde, a, a, a congressman from Illinois, introduced this. And the Hyde Amendment was a provision barring the use of federal funds to pay for abortion except for these exceptions, to save the life of the mother or if the pregnancy arises from incest or rape, that it will prohibit the use of federal funds to pay for abortion. Before the Hyde Amendment took effect, this is, you can look this up, in 1980, an estimated 300,000 abortions annually were paid for out of tax funds. The taxes that you pay. Now, I don't know what the breakdown, I hear, I hear polls, it's kind of like, when, when I hear the poll, it's kind of like half and half of the country is, is for Roe v. Wade and half is against Roe v. Wade. And then as it goes into the abortions in the third trimester, the, the percentages go really kind of off the chart as those who believe that something, something's wrong when you're aborting a baby in the six through nine months. The Hyde Amendment is going to be repealed if that platform is approved. The United States already has passed most of the nations in the world statewide by providing unlimited abortion up to the time of birth. And unless you've been living under a rock, there are some states that have passed that legislation and even suggested the possibility that after the baby is born, if something's not right and the mother and the OB agree, they can just make the baby comfortable and let the baby die. That is being surmised. And you see, Roe v. Wade has never been to just someone with a problematic pregnancy having the option of abortion. It is like an anti-pregnancy uh, provision. As believers, as Christ followers, we could never support that policy. Because you would have to convince me that Jesus would be for abortion. To keep us from creating an enormous space. And I know some people say, well, you know, that's just one thing, but that's a pretty big deal. Life in the womb is sacred. God creates Psalm 139. Because God is the one that has woven you together. He made you exactly the way you are. There's only one of you ever. 
The DNA shows it. The complexity of our DNA just shows it. There's only one of you, and God created you. It's in my mind. He has a purpose. He has a purpose for Corey. He has a plan for Corey. I don't know if I'll ever cross paths with him again. But as I pray for him, I says, Lord, you have a purpose. He knows that I'm praying for him, and I and I got a sense that he was a man of faith. But I know that God has a purpose for that man. And that purpose was originated in the womb. From the womb, he told Jeremiah, I have known you. I've ordained you. And he said the same thing with David. He says, this, David says, I, I was formed and fashioned in my mother's womb. To be honest with you, I would rather not read party platforms. I wish I hadn't read these. But for it would be irresponsible for me to speak on something if I wasn't halfway informed about it. It actually put knots in my stomach, and I, and I, I like to just kind of collectively take people by the shoulders and say, wake up, we're in a culture war here, folks. Wake up. This is not about a single issue. This is about an entire cultural shift away from the things of God, away from the, the Bible, away from principles. And things that are, are spoken to us out of this book, we would have to divorce ourselves from a lot of things in this book in order to go that way. And I shudder to think what the cultural landscape, I, I've, li I've lived about 80% of my life, at least probably to be that. In another four years, I'll get a chance, Lord willing, I'm still living to vote again, but I'm winding down. But there's a lot of you out here that you're young. This might be your first election you, you uh, cast a vote in. And you're helping decide the future of the country and the future of the cultural landscape that we're going to be dealing with. A biblical view of sexuality is under serious assault in our world today. Look around you. Thank God for those law enforcement agencies that are tracking down missing children, exploiting many of them in sex trafficking and rescuing them. But what about the scar tissue that pornography and child pornography and predators have already laid upon those innocent children and young people? And this is the cultural shift that we see. Not long ago, not that long ago, you might have heard of this, but I'm just going to refer you to it because this is what's coming down the pipe if certain things are in place. The Houston city government passed an, an ordinance called the HERO Ordinance, Houston Equal Rights Ordinance, to ban discrimination, hold on, to ban discrimination based upon sexual orientation and gender identity. Just those two things. And after passage, opponents decided that they would challenge it and require it to be put on a ballot and let the people decide. And to do that, they needed 50,000 signatures. And people got 50,000 signatures together over that. But the city declared that 17,000 or something like that we're not valid. But that wasn't enough. They had attorneys contact five pastors that supposedly was talking about it in their pulpit, and they subpoenaed those pastors' sermon notes. 
and there was such a there was a countersuit and there was such a pushback then they decided well we don't want your sermon notes but we want to know what you were doing to get those signatures this is what we're heading toward in that not that we have a tolerance but that we will have an approval or we will face law uh, legal actions that will burden the church that you can't you wouldn't be able to say what i'm saying maybe in a few years five ten years we wouldn't be able to speak openly about things like this because that's discrimination and and we're going to hold you responsible for discriminating against people you know dr michael brown he came here a few years ago and spoke here and he and he spoke at chi alpha on campus and he alerted he alerted us that the same sex issue that was going to finally be approved by the Supreme Court to recognize that as a marriage, he said, it's not going to stop there. It's not going to stop there. The agenda is that not only they be tolerated, but they will force approval of all institutions or they'll be considered discriminatory. And we go by the Bible. Biblical marriage is between a man and a woman. We never thought. I never thought that the church would be in the crosshairs of that kind of advancement. But just think, some denominations are actually debating the legitimizing homosexuality and unions. This is the new cultural assault. And it's kind of looked at the Bible as a irrelevant relic of the past that needs to be tossed aside. <clears throat> it should not have any bearing on the new developments in culture today. So where does God fit in with this? Where does God fit in with politics? <laughs> Thomas Jefferson, not your really admirable, Bible-believing, church-attending follower of Jesus. In fact, he would take offense if you said he was that. He really didn't like the church. So that's <laughs> he, really, he really couldn't stand the church. But yet in the Declaration of Independence, he mentions God. He attributes God as being the one who gives us our inalienable rights. And I'll mention this a little bit more later. And then when we did get our independence and we had our constitutional convention, and this is an amazing document. I don't know, James Madison, what his IQ would be if they tested it today. It had to be off the chart. These guys, these guys were brilliant. And they devised this constitution, separation of powers. It, it, was, it was a experiment that Europe looked on and said, that will never work. It's worked pretty good. But there's a lot of conflict, isn't there, between those separation of powers. In that first amendment to that constitution, it reads like this. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof goes on to say are abridging the freedom of speech or the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances but when it comes again to the two major political parties listen i was encouraged in 2016 to vote for the constitution party person the constitution party like 150 people got in a ballroom somewhere maybe in utah and nominated somebody, and they're going to run for president. It's like the Green Party. They're going to run for president. It's like they're, 
You know, Ross Perot was probably the, the biggest outsider that garnered the most votes. But there's only going to be one or two people that receive the, the votes needed. It's only one or two. And those two, according to Andy Stanley, we have to look at the platforms and say, how much, if I agree with that platform, does it create distance between me and Jesus? So is God mentioned at all in the platforms? Just in case you were wondering. In 42,861 words, God is not mentioned once in the Democrat platform. Not once. But LGBTQ plus is mentioned over 20 times. But not God. Now, I'm not here to read you documents. That's not my... I'm here to press on your mind to think through what we're facing. What about the GOP platform? In this one little paragraph under We the People says the declaration sets forth the fundamental precepts of American government that God bestows certain inalienable rights on every individual thus producing human equality that government exists first and foremost to protect those inalienable rights that man-made law must be consistent with God-given natural rights and that if God-given natural inalienable rights come in conflict with government court or human granted rights God-given natural inalienable rights always prevail. That there is a moral law recognized as the laws of nature and of nature's God and that American government is to operate with the consent of the governed. In a free society, the primary role of government is to protect the God-given inalienable rights of its citizens. Those constitutional rights are not negotiable for any American. That's in just one little section. And the only reason I read it is that it's kind of like talking about God. That's what I think it's talking about. The role of God in our country. Not to push him to the side and say, well, his ideas don't matter anymore. We're, 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 we're educated past that. And it comes down to salt and light. And I'll finish with this if the praise team can come back up. Here's Michael Brown. He wrote this, and this is just really, should have given you this to put on the screen. He wrote this. The Great Commission is to go and make disciples of the nations. How many would say amen to that? I know Chi Alpha would say amen to that because that's all about discipleship, D-groups. Helping people grow in the nurture and admonition of the Lord with, with developing them as a Christ follower, more and more devoted to the Lord. <clears throat> Let me start again because he asked a question follow up. The Great Commission is to go and make disciples of the nations, but how do disciples live? That's where the rubber meets the road. That is where our faith is fleshed out, affecting our personal lives, our family lives, our educational lives, and our vocational lives. It's all about salt and light. It's all about salt and light. You and I being salt and light. <clears throat> John Piper concludes that his best option is to not vote at all. And that's sad. 
because withdrawing from the exercise does not solve anything. Salt. Salt cannot be of any effect if it's kept in the salt shaker. There's a great campus book about out of the salt shaker into the world. I want to say Mary Pipper. I might be wrong on the first name, but just it's an old book about coming out of the shell of who we are and and influencing people for the kingdom of God. Out of the salt shaker. Light is only helpful if it's unimpeded. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. That's for sure. You see it. At night you see it really well. And he says, so it is for a people as light not to put a cover over their light, not to impede it, let it shine. It's not my job to tell you who to vote for. <clears throat> Last Sunday after I preached, I had someone tell me I didn't go far enough. I don't think I'm going to make everybody happy about what I do. But under God's constraint, He wants me to remind you that we are His salt and we are His light. And we are to influence the culture around us. And that culture can only be influenced by loving through our saltiness and loving through our light. Not condemning, not casting stones. Jesus kind of put it clearly when He told the people it says okay you all you that don't have any sin you throw the first rock at her and that's kind of a message to all of us isn't it he hasn't called us to throw rocks he's called us to live a repentant life but to be strong in our convictions to the point that we don't confuse the saltiness and the light of our lives with love or approval parents who really love their children I'm going out on a limb here parents who really love their children will love them too much to let them talk back to them because if you let that happen you don't love them if you don't the famous deputy if you don't nip that in the bud and I'm dating myself sure some of you probably know what I'm talking about but but this is that he who loves his child will discipline that child you just you just can't say well I don't want to hurt their feelings there's parameters and this is why we're the parents and, and, and we had to tell one of our children I'm not gonna say which one we had to just remind them that we are the parents here not you you one day you can be a parent and then you're going to reap everything you sowed. <clears throat> and they are. I sure hope they don't see this. So I'm just saying, can, can we learn how to love without being offensive? And can we learn how to be truthful without it coming across as harshness? That's a fine line, isn't it? 
I just want to encourage you to affect the culture around you. Decide that I'm going to be salt and the salt comes from here. I'm going to be light and the light comes from here. And when the salt comes from here and the light comes from here, we don't have to worry about its capacity to influence.